special edition episode. Today, I speak with Billy Wynn, who writes for Health Affairs and is also the managing partner of Thorn Run Partners. We discuss his five reasons the ACA won't be repealed. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. On November 9th, I think many of us in the healthcare industry staggered backwards, clutching our foreheads. And ever since, we have alternated between feeling like we're possibly hallucinating some kind of alternative reality interspersed with acute episodes of dyspepsia. At least that's been my experience. Today, I had the honor and pleasure to speak with Billy Wynn, who writes for Health Affairs, and Billy is also the managing partner at Thorn Run Partners. And we discuss an article he wrote, which is entitled The Five Reasons the ACA Won't Be Repealed. We also take some sidebars into the future of MACRA, Medicaid, and Medicare. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Billy. Thanks very much. Great to be with you. Let's talk about the future of the ACA and MACRA which is intertwined with that future. Recently, you wrote an article in Health Affairs called The Five Reasons the ACA Won't Be Repealed. I would love to dig into that. Sounds great. Your reason number one, an ACA repeal is not an ACA repeal. Very provocative. Yeah, and I think this is actually one of the clearer aspects of kind of this debate and thinking around how this is going to go. There are over 400 sections of the Affordable Care Act, and most people, including most members of Congress, are not fluently familiar with about 400 of them. So um, there's really only a couple of dozen uh, provisions that you read about in the newspaper and that people really care about at a political level and that uh, Republican leaders, uh, including the president-elect and uh, leaders in Congress, are really targeting uh, when they talk about repeal. That's kind of a starting point. And it was interesting, actually, just today, one of the congressional leaders talked about how the new pathway for the FDA to approve uh, biosimilar products, or also referred to as generic biologic products, would be, quote unquote, carved out of ACA repeal. And, and really, in some way, that's misleading. It's really a question of what's going to be carved in, uh, <laughs> rather than starting with the 424 sections and starting to carve out. As a starting point, I think it's important for folks to know we're not talking about all 2,500 pages of the law. We're really talking about maybe two or 300 pages of the law. And I think you raise a really good point there. First of all, if you ask your average American whether they like or dislike Obamacare, they're like, oh, get rid of it. But then if you ask them what their opinion is on the ACA, they don't know what it is. So there's this very large education and awareness gap especially then if you continue the dialogue and you ask people, well, do you like the stay on your parents' plan until you're 26? Oh, love that. How about the pre-existing condition clauses? Oh, we need those. If you drill down into the aspects of the law, people want them to continue. So I could see as a Republican, there'd be a lot of carving out and carving in. How do you see them threading that needle? I think it's really been a success of the Republican messaging machine to make Obamacare 
an ideological issue that people think about in terms of their basic human values rather than what's actually in the law and what it actually means for people. And I think that the individual mandate, despite having historically been a key component of Republican health reform proposals, was an easy lightning rod for that type of message. This is the big government telling you what to do. Oh, by the way, you know, it's coming from these liberal, liberal Democrats. So you should be afraid because this is going to restrain you and, and that sort of thing. So I do think that and that message clearly worked when they were reacting to the law moving forward and to it being implemented. I think a big question remains how well that message will work when everything's moving in reverse. And all of the things that people have gotten from the Affordable Care Act, including 23 million people who have gotten coverage, start to see that that's going to be taken away. And again, while they may oppose this kind of idea or image in their mind of the Affordable Care Act, they probably like that they're getting a pretty significant tax subsidy to buy their new plan for their family, or they're newly eligible for Medicaid when before they had no coverage at all. And, and so on and so forth. And truth be told, the mandate and the penalty for the mandate have really been very minor and actually had a, a very minor impact on the broader implementation of the law. And yet, again, it's been a very convenient lightning rod for the ideological opposition to it. We might be getting into your reason number two, entitled The Gordian Knot. But that individual mandate is actually what pays for <laughs> a good deal of this. So if you are a Republican who is very into making sure that things are fiscally balanced and, and sound and uh -huh. you remove the payment engine. There really are a lot of folds to the Gordian knot of the <laughs> Affordable Care Act. And, and you, you called out one of them, which is the funding. And despite what probably the vast majority of Americans would say if they were polled, the Affordable Care Act in total reduced the deficit by over $100 million. It was assessed that way by the independent scorekeepers called the Congressional Budget Office at the time it passed, and it has been assessed that way ever since. And if you care about a balanced budget and you take the funding mechanisms away, many of which are taxes that would be repealed uh, under the Republican plan, then it's true. You do not have any money left, or you have very little money left, certainly not as much as you would need to reinstall anything remotely comparable to the coverage that the Affordable Care Act instituted. So that is one very important facet of the knot. Another facet is that the, as you noted as well, the individual mandate, and also I would add the tax subsidies to buy insurance, that would, both of which would be repealed in the Republican plan, are essential to bring younger, healthier people into the insurance market to make things like guaranteed issue, i.e. the insurer has to sell you a plan no matter who you are or what your conditions are, the ban on pre-existing condition exclusions, which means they give you the plan, they also can't carve out your cancer or your diabetes or whatever chronic condition or pre-existing condition you may have, your ability to include your dependents up to the age of 26. All of these types of policies only makes sense when you have a robust market and you need the mandate and the tax subsidies to bring those people in and have that robust market. So it's not something that is, it takes five minutes rather than 30 seconds to explain to the public why you have the mandate and, and, and why these hundreds of billions of dollars of tax subsidies are necessary to give people the things that everybody agrees they want and should have, which, which are these consumer protections.
So again, that's going to have to be confronted in this repeal and replace process. What are the things that nobody, you know, as you mentioned earlier, there's 424 sections to the ACA and everyone is laser focused on the individual mandate and things which are the tip of the iceberg, the things that your average person can see very clearly and understand. What are some of the more invisible things that we in the healthcare industry are cognizant of, perhaps, but are drawing a lot less media attention? I'd say, for starters, this is inside baseball, but it's it's straightforward and I think good for people to know. It helps people contextualize this conversation in a more precise way. There are nine titles to the Affordable Care Act. The first one deals with coverage. And that's got most of the stuff that people hear about. It's the individual mandate, the employer mandate, the subsidies for the purchase of insurance, and so forth. The rest of them, things like uh, workforce provisions, there are dozens and dozens of provisions intended to promote new physicians and other clinical professionals to create a pipeline of people to service the newly covered consumers under the Affordable Care Act. There's a whole another title um, around prevention and public health. And most of those are not getting any attention, although one, there's a prevention and public health fund, which was created to give the administration some latitude to implement new innovative programs to prevent disease, of course, rather than treat disease. That's already been by and large repealed. Actually, just recently, Congress took away some of that funding. That has been a topic of of attention. And of course, the women's health issues, the access to reproductive services and contraception and so forth are obviously a top line political issue that, that is addressed in a lot of the you know, repeal and replace proposals. But, but again, by and large, the prevention of public health components will stay in place. Um, another, Title VI, relates to fraud and abuse. Very few people have had any qualm with them. It's certainly aligned with Republican ideology to make sure that you know, there's not any fraud going on in, in these healthcare programs, whether pre-existing or newly created, like in the uh, exchanges for commercial insurance. So anyway, so there's a lot of things. I mentioned the biosolimers provisions earlier that are not likely to be touched. Things that folks may not be thinking will be involved. I think, again, number one is probably some of these women's health preventive care issues, i.e. access to contraception and so forth, that those are addressed in a lot of the Republican replacement plans. They are considered to be essential to a lot of the um, conservative Republicans in the Congress. And so that is going to be a key touch point in this debate. And there are a variety of other, there's tax provisions that not many people pay attention to. One that I'd mention is a, a so-called Medicare surtax. It's a 0.9% tax increase on high-income families, those with incomes above $250,000 a year. That was one of the funding mechanisms in the Affordable Care Act that is likely to be repealed. So there are some esoteric tax issues like that that are implicated here that folks may not be aware of. Sort of moving down to your third reason why the ACA won't be repealed, and that is that there are 10 Republican governors. Let me just throw one aspect in, and that is Kentucky. Mm-hmm. I've been dying to talk to somebody. Recently, Matt Bevins was elected and repealed, uh-huh. rolled back Kentucky Connect and I'm not exactly sure what happened subsequently with with Medicaid expansion in that state. Uh But a lot of people voted for Matt Bevins, who were actually the people who were most likely to be taking advantage of the services that were offered by either the Medicaid expansion or, or the Connect. Is that any sort of case study 
Is there any lessons that can be learned from that experience or what happened subsequently? Potentially. A couple of issues come up in that context. I mean, number one, I do think, you know, it's complicated for these Republican governors, to say the least, because while they clearly managed in many cases to formulate and implement expansions of healthcare coverage that were facilitated by the Affordable Care Act, I guarantee you that none of them ever came out and and said they were big fans of the Affordable Care Act. So it'll be very difficult for them to come out in opposition to repeal. I don't think that's what they're going to do. I think what they're going to do is oppose defunding the Medicaid expansion for states that have already expanded, something like that, where there's gives them an out to go along with the broader repeal and replace regime. But it does present complications for the members of Congress who are actually drafting this, because just for example, if you leave that funding in place for the Medicaid expansion, you lose a lot of the savings that you've generated from your repeal effort. And actually, the repeal effort starts to look like it's going to increase the deficit rather than decrease it. Another point you raised, though, speaks more to sort of how it plays with the consumers. And, And that is a key disconnect in this burgeoning battle that we will see around repeal and replace. And and that is on the Republican side, and this is coming from the messaging uh, machines in the Congress on their side. In short, the message is, don't worry about that, those 23 million people. They're kind of, they're not really there. They they had coverage before. We don't know exactly what it was. Surely they'll find coverage again. States have fallback programs. Hospitals have emergency room, you know, and, and, so, so too with the general public who, who are, you know, include that 23 million. It's we're going to take care of you. Don't worry. But the fact of the matter is that step one of repeal and replace will take their coverage away. So far, they've been able to maintain a message that is dissonant from that reality. And we'll see if they can carry that through to pass the repeal bill. If you're just talking, you can say whatever you want and nobody knows whether it's true or not. You know, they keep saying we're living in a post-truth era. But suddenly... Yeah. When words turn into actions, things that are impossible, it becomes clear that they are, in fact, impossible. (laughs) Uh, Messy, uh, maybe not impossible, serious ramifications. Your broader point is absolutely right. And I think that that something that, you know, people ought to know that that I don't emphasize in my written piece, everyone was surprised by the November 8th election, including Republicans. There's no doubt that in thoughtful Republican circles, of which there are many out there, uh, indeed, oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? We have to own this repeal. We have to own the replace. We're, we we basically have to own the Affordable Care Act in an odd way, right? Because they're now both the caretakers of it and the, the potential kind of destroyers of it, um, and, and obligated to to fill in you know the, the holes that are left uh, when they do that. I think it's fair to say there, you know, this is not something they're going to say on the record, but there's serious concern that they now have responsibility to execute on this. And they do, I think, in many cases, understand the actual implications of what, what they may be about to do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, of course, a whole lot easier to point out problems than solve them. And the second that you solve them, you have to defend what you've done. Yes, it's true. And, you know, the in, in fairness and, and in balancing, there's you know there's a lot of countervailing factors here. The overarching thing that Republican members of Congress care about right now is delivering on their promise to repeal the Affordable Care Act. They know that that is has has become extremely important to their base and their voters. And all practical intellectual considerations aside, 
they really feel like they need to do that. And, and there is there are political, clear political implications as well that if, if they don't, i.e. they vote against repeal, they may well attract a primary opponent who could well unseat them in the midterm elections in 2018 because they flip-flopped on Obamacare. No Republican member, I think, of Congress wants to have their ad run against them, and I have no doubt that is, that is in their minds as they think about these issues. One thing I've heard that affords some nice wiggle room is you repeal, but you don't replace. So you kind of stay in that middle ground where you're like, okay, it's repealed, but we're going to continue it until we replace it. Yes, and, and, and that is the direction that they're going. The most recent repeal legislation that, that passed and was vetoed by the president did have delay of the repeal of some of the provisions, especially the coverage provisions, so that people don't immediately lose their insurance to give them time to create a replacement plan. And, and, and that, is, that is a linchpin of the package they're trying to sell at present on this whole plan. Clearly, there are a lot of questions about that strategy. Number one is, what will the replacement plan look like? Can it get enough votes to actually pass the Congress? They've stated an intention of having this replacement plan be go through regular order, which means 60 votes in the Senate, which means it needs to be bipartisan on the one hand. On the other hand, they've talked about including some very sweeping reforms to Medicaid, for example, that we can go into in a minute, but the Democrats are you know, undoubtedly going to oppose at least enough Democrats will oppose to, to block the bill from getting to 60 votes. There are questions, as I note in my piece, about whether even simply among Republicans you can get consensus on a replacement plan because some want you know, tax subsidies that are a little more generous, some want some that are not so generous. We've already noted there's, there's not going to be a whole lot of money left on the table to carve up and, and try to create some coverage that, that is remotely analogous to what we have now under the ACA. Well, yes, there is the construct of saying we will come back with a replacement plan. I think anybody who looks just one inch beneath the surface, you know, a lot of questions arise about what that's going to look like and whether or not it will ever actually come together. And that it actually is your reason number four, why the ACA won't be repealed. Is There is no replacement plan. And I love what you said, that the Republicans have had eight years to come up with one, a replacement plan, and, and have not managed to do so yet, which might portend. Yeah, I know the past isn't any prediction of the future, but there might be something there. There, there might be something there. And, and it's not <laughs> like they haven't tried. They, they have had working groups. They've had subcommittees. They've had, they have tried to come together with a consensus alternative to the Affordable Care Act, and they have failed to do so. You know, you do have Speaker Ryan's plan, and he, he does have strong support in his caucus. And so that's the, that's where we start when we think about what this might look like. But it's not clear that that has enough votes in the House to pass, for example. And, and furthermore, as I note, it's, it's not really clear what it is. It's not in legislative language. We don't have independent analysis of the coverage changes it would yield or the costs implications of, of what he's proposing. And it includes things that reforming Medicare that, that will definitely be incre incredibly controversial and have coverage and cost implications of its own. I, I, yeah, I, there's plenty of reason to doubt that even within the Republican ranks alone, not to mention getting into negotiating with Democrats and others, that they can come up with a consensus plan. Now, part of their thinking is the difference now is that there will be a deadline. And that that's going to force them and Democrats and healthcare stakeholders to 
come together, you know, and, and come up with a solution. There's a chance that they're right about that. The problem is that for those who care about the coverage and the benefits of the Affordable Care Act that, that will be lost with repeal, when you come back to the table in that context, you really have no leverage because the alternative to negotiating on the replacement plan is nothing. It's a vacuum of repeal of the ACA with nothing in its stead. So Republican leaders will have all kinds of leverage at that point to impose their uh, view of reform with a lot less money to spend on coverage and probably with you know some ideological components relating to women's health and elsewhere. Speaking of replacement plans, and you mentioned sweeping reforms of Medicaid and then also Medicare, how should we be looking at those entitlement programs? Sure. You know, in other words, Ryan mentioned voucher-based Medicare. I mean, what does that look like? What do we need to be thinking about relative to that, for example? Yeah, of course. So I'd say just briefly, on the Medicaid side, the, the Ryan proposal is technically referred to as a per capita cap um, approach to funding the Medicaid program. So currently, Medicaid is, is jointly funded between the federal government and the states. The federal government will cover a certain percentage of the costs of providing Medicaid coverage to state enrollees. And that commitment is, is not bound by any hard cash cap. If you meet the eligibility criteria, if you're getting the services that are covered by the program, the federal government will meet its obligation to pay for it, as, as will the state. What the Ryan plan does is changes that construct to say, state X, we're going to give you a certain amount of money per person that's enrolled in your Medicaid program as of a particular date. I think the Ryan plan uses 2016. And that's all you're going to get. And we will increase that number every year by some kind of inflationary index. But if that doesn't keep up with the actual cost of covering the people who are eligible, well, you're going to have waiting lists, you're going to have more cost sharing for your enrollees, you're going to have people, you know, you're going to have more restricted care. There's not really a lot of doubt about that. That is, that is really what it is intended to do is to restrain costs and force states to dial back coverage to meet the capped budget that they now have. In Medicare, it's similar, except the, the relationship rather between the, the federal government and the state, it's between the federal government and the Medicare beneficiary. So currently, if you're 65 or you have a disability or you know, certain other criteria for enrolling in Medicare, if you need a service that's covered by Medicare, you're going to get it, and the government's going to pay its share of it. You might have a 20% out-of-pocket coinsurance or what have you, but the benefit is guaranteed. Under the Ryan plan, you get a capped cash allotment, a voucher, if you will, to purchase uh, insurance, um, whether um, in traditional Medicare or from a private plan that's offering a comparable Medicare benefit. And if you need more robust coverage, you need more coverage of your out-of-pocket liability, you um, need services that aren't in kind of the core benefit or what have you, you have to pay the difference in the cost of that coverage out of your own pocket. And so too, as with the state Medicaid program uh, reforms, um, so too with the Medicare reforms, the, the crux of the savings is that the difference between the cost of the actual care and the voucher that the beneficiaries are given is going to increase over time. And so the beneficiaries are going to pay more and more out of pocket over time. And that's why AARP, and, and you know, I can't speak for them or anyone else, but I mean, this is extremely controversial among seniors and, and others who you know, may someday become seniors. 
because uh, it's very clear what the game is here is to, to pass more costs on to the, the beneficiary. I've heard the term decentralization bandied about, which I'm assuming means either cost transfer more to the state or transfer more power over what gets covered and what doesn't get covered to the states. Is that a correct assumption, number one? And then number two, are there ramifications to that or what are the intended or unintended consequences? In the Medicaid context, what that means is there are strings attached to the the federal uh, allotment for Medicaid programs at the state level. There aren't that many, but there are some certain benefits that have to be covered. There's you know certain uh, restrictions on cost sharing and you know the out-of-pocket costs that, that the state can pass on to the Medicaid enrollees and restrictions on premiums and that type of thing. So the decentralization that you hear over the Medicaid context means loosening you know those um, restrictions and and it's it's proposed and it's accurate that this is what a lot of Republicans think of as the trade-off. You're going to get restricted funding, but you're going to have more freedom to do what you want with that funding. I mean, my opinion is you have to have that freedom to do what you're going to do with the funding because you're not going to be able to meet your obligations to pay for the care of your enrollees. You have no choice but to increase their cost sharing. You have no choice but to charge them premiums and restrict access. So you couldn't have per capita caps or, or more loosely and not quite precisely referred to as block granting you know, without that flexibility, because it's really a mandatory component of the program to allow states to, to deal with the dollars that they have. Let's circle around to your last of five reasons that the ACA won't get repealed, which is healthcare stakeholders. Yes, my friends. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so you know, and that's that's a broad term. I mean, we're all really healthcare stakeholders, but I am I'm really speaking to the folks you know, who are active, whether from the state level, state level associations, or national associations, or hospitals across the country, health plans across the country, and and certainly consumers and, and any groups that those consumers may support. We speak for them, you know, at the federal level. It's been what maybe thirty days since the election, so. It's starting to turn, but you know, one of the one of the things that motivated me to write this article was that I observed a certain degree of passivity, and I think part of it was just shock, which I think many people across the country, including those who voted, frankly, I think, for the president-elect, some shock that he is in fact going to become the president, and the Republicans are going to control you know the two branches of Congress and with the Supreme Court nominee, arguably all three with the judiciary. Yeah, so shock has been a part of it, but overall, there's been a, a resignation. Um, and I'm being a little bit harsh about this, but I think it's true that, you know, oh gosh, there's really not much we can do about this. The Republicans have the control over the House and Senate and the White House, and they're going to do whatever they want to do. And, and we'll just have to kind of deal with, you know, whatever drippings come off the table when they're done. And that's really not the case. You know, as I tried to point out, this is complicated, it's controversial. And it's really the job of healthcare stakeholders to make sure that everybody knows what's actually going on here so that we can make clear choices about whether we want to accept it or not. And we are starting to see that. I'm not going to name names, but some stakeholders are coming out with firmer statements about how this needs to be a bit more of a rational process, how we need to look at what the replacement plan is going to be like before we go ahead and, and with repeal. And so it's, it's moving in the right direction, but it's really going to be incumbent upon those of us who really care about healthcare to engage in this debate or else we are going to get you know what is planned which is which is repeal with no guarantee of replace so speaking of healthcare stakeholders one of the things that i have heard a lot of concern about in healthcare stakeholder circles is macra 
So, Uh you know, MACRA is kind of intertwined into the ACA by various tendrils. How do you think that MACRA could be affected by all that's going on? I mean, it it was a bipartisan effort, but still there's bits and pieces that are part of the ACA. Yes. So they are definitely intertwined. And and the the most obvious way that they're intertwined is CMMI, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, which was established by the ACA to pursue pilots and demonstration programs in healthcare delivery that reduce cost or improve quality. And in in the years since it was enacted, CMMI has launched dozens and dozens of initiatives to incentivize better care and and lower cost care by providers uh, for patients. When MACRA came along, it established in the near term some quality measurement programs that physicians and others will be assessed by and have some payment implications for. But in the longer term, the clear uh, incentive in MACRA is for these caregivers to move into what are called advanced uh, alternative payment models, things like accountable care organizations, medical homes, uh, bundled payment models, alternatives to the, the basic fee-for-service, you did this service, you get the next dollar. It's a broader way of looking at care that their promising signs can actually improve care and save costs at the same time. So when MACRA did that, CMMI became the agency that was rolling out these advanced alternative payment models, advanced APMs. And so if CMMI were repealed full stop, MACRA would break down. There would be no endpoint of these advanced APMs for caregivers to participate in. So I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Number one, CMMI could be left alone. That's a viable consideration. It's not repeal of CMMI is not included in the uh, the Republican repeal package that was passed last year, I believe. It is, however, in the Ryan Better Way plan to repeal. So it's very much on the table. But they could leave it alone. Number two is they could repeal it but they could relabel it and it could serve basically the same function, which is to test these advanced alternative payment models, which again, I think most on Republican and Democratic circles think while new and and warranting more testing are promising and and need to continue. There are some nuanced considerations about CMMI that probably will be addressed. For example, CMMI does in fact have very, very broad authority to implement some of these programs if their initial testing proves positive implement them nationwide and effectively change Medicare policy and Medicare law or override Medicare law if these programs are deemed to be successful. Some members of Congress, including many Democrats, have a little bit of buyer's remorse about that, that maybe that's really too broad of authority for an agency to have. So that's a debate we're going to see. But but for purposes of MACRA, I think that, uh, again, whether it's renamed or got you know new, certainly new people in the leadership, the function of CMMI is going to continue so that the pipeline of these new payment models continues to move forward. All right. So a couple of rapid fire questions to summarize. What is actionable about all of this? If you were, let's just start out with a provider organization. So if you were the CEO or on the leadership team of a provider organization, Mm -hmm. given everything that we just talked about, what action steps would you take? What should I be doing right now? Sure. So here, here, here's my advice. Take a look at the, the repeal bill that passed the Congress late last year and was, was vetoed by the president. That is the starting point and what most people think will likely be, by and large, what the Republican Congress tries to move as soon as possible, potentially in January. 
And if you don't like what's in there, look at it as a standalone document. If you don't like the consequences of enactment of that bill in January, then contact your representative and tell them, number one, that you have concerns about it. Number two, that if you also agree that this is the case, of course, the Affordable Care Act needs to be improved, whether whether you're you know on the left or the right, you probably agree with that. But let's come together, us, the healthcare stakeholder, and you, the member of Congress, and talk about how we can do the replacement of these provisions we're taking away in, in the same step so that we don't we're left wondering what's going to happen next and that the market, which is, is what it will do, the market doesn't start reacting to the repeal before the market knows what the replacement, and there specifically I mean insurers pulling out of the individual market, hospitals having to restrict the care that they give to the uninsured and so forth. But the healthcare system is going to start to react regardless of whether there's a two or three year delay in this you know, theoretical coming together around a replacement plan. So the time to, to, to send that message that this should be a more rational process, it should take more time, it should be deliberative, it should, we should have repeal and replace at the same time, that's the responsible approach. That needs to be delivered right now because Congress comes back in the beginning of January and the wheels for this process will, be, will start to turn. So whether it's independently or it's with your state association or your national representatives in D.C., it's time to, to start acting immediately. Is there anything that any specific stakeholder should be doing differently? So in other words, if I'm a provider organization, is there something that very specifically I need to be thinking about or a payer or a pharmaceutical entity or you know someone else in, in life sciences? Like, Do you have any advice for individual types of, of stakeholders? Sure. I mean, I th- number one, I mean, I think that obviously different stakeholders have different observations and expertise around what's been happening in, in the healthcare market under the Affordable Care Act to communicate to members of Congress. They have sent letters, for example, to state governors for their feedback, but obviously that, that feedback should not be restricted to governors in terms of how all of this should proceed. And so, and, and obviously in that instance, things like the Medicaid expansion issues are appropriate for a governor to speak to. For example, health plans with expertise on what the insurance market would actually look like if the repeal plan moves, moves forward with no guarantee of a replacement, you know, speak to those issues because that's their their expertise. And obviously, they're, they also, to some degree, speak on behalf of their enrollees, many of whom will lose the ability to afford coverage if the subsidies are taken away. Hospitals are very intimately familiar with the implications of the Medicaid expansion. They see a lot of those patients every day. They also can speak to the fact that cuts that they were subjected to under the Affordable Care Act, primarily in the form of Medicare reimbursement reductions, will remain in place under the Republican repeal and replace regime, even though the, the benefits of their patients having either commercial or Medicaid coverage will be taken away. So they can talk, you know, each of these healthcare stakeholders was basically supported to some degree the Affordable Care Act because there was a trade-off. They made some sacrifices and they got some benefits in return from a market perspective. And for those, especially those like hospitals, where pretty much all of the benefits are being taken away, but all of the sacrifices are being left in place, that would be a good place to start in terms of expressing um, your views on, on how this may play out. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Billy. It's my pleasure. Great to be with you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of 
all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.